If you're like me, you get a lot of newsletters. But there's one I read every day, and I'm far from alone. Alan Murray is the CEO of Fortune, and every day his thoughts about the state of business and CEO leadership arrive in inboxes around the world. I've yet to meet a page member who doesn't subscribe, and that alone is impressive. But maybe even more impressive is Alan's advocacy of the idea that business has a societal responsibility to fulfill. He's been talking about corporate purpose and stakeholder capitalism since way before corporate wokeness was cool. He's also a legendary journalist, a fierce defender of the value of independent journalism, and a keen observer of global economics. At the Page Spring Seminar last month, Page President Roger Bolton had a sit-down with Alan to talk about the tumultuous times we're in and what they mean for CCO leadership. Today, we're bringing you that conversation. I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is The New CCO. I met Alan when I was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Public Affairs under President George H.W. Bush, and Alan was the Chief Economic Correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. My job was to tell the truth about what the administration was trying to do, and Alan's job was to find the whole truth and hold us accountable. We respected those roles and each other and felt that what we had in common was an obligation to the truth and the public interest. Today, 30 years after Alan and I first met, he's the CEO of Fortune, driving its efforts to make business better, and I'm the CEO of Page, driving our efforts to transform business for the better. The remarkable alignment between Fortune's and Page's commitments to encouraging business to build broad stakeholder value is noteworthy. No one in journalism is doing work today that is more relevant than to our function than Alan. So, Alan, I'd like to start with the economy. Uh, the impact of the pandemic on the global economy is profound. What happens next in fiscal policy? Well, Roger, first of all, let me thank you for having me here. Look, let me talk about the economy first. I don't know any serious person. I haven't talked to any serious person who still believes we will have anything remotely approaching a V-shaped recovery where we open up the economy in May and June. And by the beginning of next year, we're back to normal. Uh, when I asked the Fortune 500 CEOs the question of when will economic activity get back to where it was before the pandemic, the the preponderance of responses was around the first quarter of 2021. So what they foresee is, and I think this is similar to what Jay Powell said uh, yesterday, is this is going to be a tough year. We're going to see unemployment at levels we've never seen it at Uh uh, in our lifetimes, uh, and that 2021, in part because the Fed has been so aggressive and Congress has been aggressive in responding to the uh, epidemic, we won't slide into a 10-year Great Depression like the 1930s. We'll see 2021 be a year of recovery, and hopefully by the beginning of 2022, I hope that's what I said earlier, beginning of 2022, we see something closer to normal. So, now there, there are there were a minority of the CEOs who think it'll take more like two years to recover than one year, uh, and most of the CEOs think we're not returning to normal. We're we're moving to a new normal, which I think is part of what you wanted to talk about. By the way, let me just. Uh, uh, the the CEOs, uh, I, I wrote that about Jay Powell before I got the results of the CEO survey. They said the exact same thing. Uh, number one, they they and and you know him personally. So, you know, the Fed is a funny institution. Its principal product is confidence. It doesn't really do all that much. It has some effect on some 
interest rates that aren't really all that relevant to anybody's lives. Uh, the main thing it produces is confidence. And, and Jay may not be a Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen grade economic scholar, but he has the perfect temperament for uh, uh, conveying confidence. And, the, and, and frankly, I'll, I'll finish this in a second, but he uh, had to withstand a withering attack from the president of the United States for years withering and we've seen one leader after another fall under that pressure and leave the administration and jay did what jay does he just kept his mouth shut he did his job he kept his head down he said what he had to say he didn't respond to ad hominem attacks and i i think that's part of why he's in the uh, position he's in now of of such immense respect I think there's a consensus that there will be some long-lasting impacts. And you recently talked to McKinsey's student Susan Lund about that. And you inter also interviewed Jenny Rometty on your podcast about the need for uh, reskilling and retraining. Do you see a role for responsible stakeholder capitalism on this issue of retraining and workforce? Oh, there has to be. I mean, what what what's the number now of, of unemployed? It's like 30-some 30, 30 million uh, McKinsey did some work showing that they they believe 57 million people in the economy are in jobs at risk. What's interesting about this crisis, uh, uh, and there's some positive and negative results of this, is that it took all the trends that were already in place during the expansion and accelerated them. That both technology trends and workforce trends. And what McKinsey found was that the people who are being displaced by the pandemic are people who are probably going to dis be displaced over the next 10 years anyway by technology. It just sped it all up. Um, and and I think that means and there hasn't been nearly enough talk about this. I think that means the retraining effort has to speed up. What You know, it's not just a question of wait until the economy comes back and put these people back in the jobs they were in, that's not going to happen. There's there's going to be permanent job loss. And now is the time, particularly because they, you know, now is the time to put in place the programs that can give them the kind of skills that can make them employable in the future. And and I think companies have to lead that. They have to, in, in part because we know the government's not very good at it in general, even at the best of times. And second, because as far as government goes, this is clearly not the best of times. We have a degree of, you know, there's a tendency, Roger, and I find this all the time, and I'm sure you do too. There's a tendency when people see this uh, political backbiting and these spats and fighting that go on in Washington, there's a tendency for people who haven't spent a lot of time there to say, well, that's the way it always is. You and I know that's not the way it always was. That's not the way it was for, uh, you know, for most of your career and my career in Washington, we have a particularly dysfunctional political system at the moment. And I think relying on the political system to solve something like the training program is misguided. You need you need government help. No question. But uh, if and this is, I, I believe, part of the impetus for the rise of stakeholder capitalism, if businesses don't take the lead, we're going to be in trouble and they're going to be in trouble. In addition to the uh, unemployment and reskilling focus, you recently reported there's a dark side to the work from home story that isn't getting the attention it deserves. And Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg wrote an article in Fortune about that. Is there for a role for business here? The impact on women uh, in particular is profound. 
Oh, it has to be done by business because that's where uh, that's where it's happening. I mean, we, we've been doing um, a series of CEO calls where we get 40 or 50 CEOs on a conference call. Uh, many of them have been uh, Chatham House rules, so not not fully reported. But we've had great participation where they share ideas, share experiences, best practices. We've been doing this since the pandemic started. And I was on a call, I guess it was early last week, uh, with Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce. And this part was on the record, so I can tell you uh, what he said. He was he was just talking along and he said that they had found they were staying in close touch with all their employees. Salesforce is huge, of course, and that they had found a third of them uh, uh, were reporting mental health problems. And I said, whoa, wait a minute, Mark, stop. Time out. Uh, A third of your employees are reporting mental health problems. And he said the number is 36 percent, to be precise. And some of it is the isolation. Some of it is the fear and uncertainty. Two hours later, I was on a call that uh, uh, a separate group of people that we had brought together uh, uh, and Margaret Keene, the CEO of Synchrony, who also has a I don't know how many employees, but a lot. It's a huge uh, banking credit card operation. Uh, She didn't give a precise number, but she said the same thing. They had seen a significant uptick in calls to the uh, uh, the stress line. And again, some of it could be isolation. Some of it could be, uh, you know, anxiety about where this virus is headed and where the economy is headed. Some of it is clearly domestic problems. People uh, who have discovered the, that that whoever they're living with uh, may not be the ideal partner for them. Um, uh, some of it is probably abuse situations, uh, but it's a real problem. And any any business of whatever size that isn't paying attention to that is missing the boat. The uh, Page CCO's Paysetter report, which you're familiar with, which came out well before the pandemic, talked about the profound impact of disruption. And I would note that Amazon, as of this week, is number two on the uh, Fortune 500 list. Talk about disruption. Um, and you've been talking about this and the acceleration of uh, of technological change with uh, I.J. Banga and others uh, in the pandemic. And you asked CEOs about it, and we asked our members about it. Let's see what they said. So our members said 85, 86% think that uh, trans- technological transformation is being accelerated by the pandemic, even more than the 75% of CEOs who told you that in your survey. What are your thoughts about the pace of change for business, and how can we help as CCOs in partnering with yeah. CEOs on yeah, it's really, really interesting because that's not an obvious result. I mean, if you if you would if you would ask me or ask any any of your colleagues or ask the CEOs three months ago, if we have a recession, do you think it will accelerate technological transformation? I think your go to response would have had to be no, because obviously uh, a crisis affects your uh, uh, resources to fund technological transformation. But the nature of this crisis where we all said, oops, we're going home and we're all going to work from home starting next week has just prompted remarkable activity. And I've heard this in all our CEO uh, phone calls, and we're experiencing it ourselves at Fortune and you're experiencing experiencing it at at Page. Uh, Things that uh, things that in normal times, you know, if you had asked the page staff to produce an online conference in normal times, they said, oh, God, give us a year to prepare for that. I'm, I'm not and I'm not, I, I don't mean to diss the page staff in any way. That's what my staff would have said. Um, 
and and what happens and this is you know remember Rahm Emanuel eight years ago said crisis creates an opportunity what happens in a crisis is two things one is it clarifies your focus we knew what the goal here is everybody's at home if we don't figure out how to talk to them virtually we can't talk to them at all if we don't figure out how to do business with them virtually we don't do business with them at all so it clarifies your focus and it also mows down a lot of the cultural obstacles to innovation the kind of risk aversion the go slow i got to protect my old business before i build this new business well your old business is gone right <laughs> nothing's happening out there in the in the real world so you have to focus on the on the virtual world. And I see this in it virtually in different forms at virtually every company whose CEO I've talked to. Uh, Mindy Grossman, who now runs WW, which we used to know as Weight Watchers, uh, they were kind of like us at Fortune, knew that the future was digital, the future was virtual, but thought they had a lot of time to get there. And then suddenly they woke up one morning and say, we have to get there tomorrow. And they did. Uh, and now are providing the kind of uh, social support that they provide to their members all uh, virtually. So for us, it was these, you know, our business, as you know, is 40% of our revenue comes did come from live events. So suddenly the pandemic hits, 40% of our revenue, and frankly, a lot more than that of our profit was out the window, just gone. Um, yet, Amazingly, what we've had, and everybody said, oh, you know, the CEOs will never come to a virtual conference and, and the sponsors will never sponsor a virtual conference and we can't make this work. Amazingly, what I have found in the last six weeks is that the CEOs are participating. I mean, we've had I, the one I told you about with Mark Benioff, Kevin Johnson from Starbucks was there. The CEO of Ikea was there. Mindy Grossman was there. The CEO of Delta at Bashman was there. And what I'm hearing back from them is, First of all, you can feel there's more engagement, there's more exchange. They like it better. They feel it's more valuable. I mean, you, you do when we do a conference in Guangzhou, most of the time is spent on a plane getting there and leaving, and they're so stressed that they only spend 20 minutes there and you know make a few comments and go. So we're all learning uh, how uh, we're, we're all learning in an accelerated way during the midst of this crisis. So. Um in your CEO daily this morning, you said that CEOs told you nationalism and less global supply chains, 82% predicted that. And The Economist this week uh, warns in its top leader that nationalism threatens, in their view, to make life more expensive and less free going forward. Are you concerned about the threat to global trade and prosperity from the pandemic and the reactions to it? Yes. Look, I think globalization is irreversible. Uh, as, as the economy moved from, from stuff to bits, it became even more irreversible. Uh, you just can't stop that stuff from moving across borders, although the Chinese and some other governments tried pretty hard. So I don't think globalization is over. Um, but we're clearly in a period of rising nationalism that is making companies rethink their supply chains. Uh, uh, and focus more on resilience and ability to move quickly out of troublesome markets and into safer markets and to bring stuff, bring actual manufacturing closer to where the ultimate user is. I, I think every company is rethinking that. Alan, you mentioned um, the impact on Fortune itself. And in fact, you've laid off some people and you've taken a salary cut. Are you as concerned about the impact of all of this? Actually, 
before this on uh, independent journalism as I am? Yeah, they're kind of two separate questions there. Let me do the fortune question first and then the independent journalism second. Uh, uh, Fortune was sold just a little over a year ago, uh, taken out of the old uh, Time Inc., sold to an investor in he's he's Chinese origin, but he lives in Thailand. Um, And for us, that was a huge opportunity uh, to uh, change our fundamental business model. We knew that we had to move away from what had been a predominantly advertising focused model to more of a premium model where we were asking our readers and our users and the business people we interact with to support our journalism. And so we had a a pretty carefully laid out seven year strategy that involved putting up a paywall, which we have done, beginning to cultivate uh, digital subscribers, which we have done to create a new platform called Fortune Connect that helps Uh, high potential business leaders who want to rise to the next level, which we will do in the next couple of months. But our plan was to to finance all of that with the profits from our live conferences. So and and we these things don't happen overnight. We needed the seven year time frame to make that work. My failure as a CEO was to recognize that that a pandemic may hit one year into the transition and totally uh, disrupt your plans. And so that's what we're struggling with. I I don't know. I I mean, I I fault myself for not, uh, obviously nobody could have, I mean, you could predict eventually there'd be a pandemic, but I do fault myself for doing what so many business leaders have done, which is assume the good times continue indefinitely. When we we knew it had been 10 years since the last recession, something was going to hit us. Uh, but this one was particularly painful for fortune. So um, so we're struggling with that. We've been given a lifeline by our investor to try and keep the investment going and keep the turn going. Uh, but it's difficult. And we're doing a, a, a really good job on the virtual events, but it's not the same level of profitability yet as the live events on 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 independent journalism. Uh, you know, the good things you see out there are the people who had already made the turn. If you look at the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, they had or magazines like the New Yorker or The Economist, although The Economist did layoffs, too. Uh, they had built up a significant subscriber paid base digitally that gives them an important lifeline to survive this. Uh, the ones who are getting killed are the are the kind of fast moving digital operations who thought they could make the advertising work to their benefit. You know, the the uh, uh, Voxes and the Quartzes and the Refinery 29. And they're they're obviously uh, suffering badly because the advertising market is way, way down. So I I, I worry about financial support for independent journalism a great deal. And And by the way, one last thing. Local journalism, which is incredibly important to people in communities, uh, you know, having uh, a source of reliable information and somebody who's keeping an eye on the on the governments and the, the organizations in the community to make sure corruption isn't going on is getting absolutely clobbered because all the sources of advertising that they relied on uh, dried up with the lockdown. For me, it's a personal point of pride to personally subscribe, not just through page, but personally subscribe to Fortune and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, et cetera. And I hope all of my colleagues feel the same way. I think it's important. Um, 
I want to talk about stakeholder capitalism. This is kind of the core of what you've been working on and what Paige has been working on for some time. What are you seeing? Do you think that stakeholder capitalism is accelerating now and is it for real? Yeah, I do, Roger. And let me let me just give you a little bit of my history on this because I want to I, I think it's important your folks know I didn't come to this out of some uh, position of belief or some desire to use my role as a journalist to make the business world a better place. Uh, I came to it as a journalist. I mean, I started hearing after the Great Recession, you really started hearing more and more respected business voices saying, essentially, we have to be better at this. Uh, you know, what we're doing isn't working well enough and we have to figure out a way to do it better. I think Bill Gates was one of the first. He gave a speech at Davos 11 years ago uh, talking about creative capitalism. And you started seeing all these people putting adjectives in front of capitalism. You know, you had inclusive capitalism. Uh, John Mackey of Whole Foods talked about conscious capitalism. Uh, Mark Benioff came onto the scene and talked about compassionate capitalism. Uh, uh, so, you know, there was clearly an impulse among the most farsighted business leaders that capitalism needed a modifier. <laughs> we had to figure out how to do it better. Uh, and I kept seeing this grow in the, you know, I've been in a unique position for the last 20 years to have, I, I, I don't, I, I don't keep count. I don't know how many CEOs I've had the opportunity to interview, but it's, it's like most of the fortune 100, 200 over the course of the last 20 years. And I talked to them about things like this and I heard more and more of them talking about the importance of moving beyond short-term shareholder results and focusing on the long-term and focusing on the stakeholders uh, by the way, I would always say, why? Why are you doing this? The first thing they told me is we're doing it because of our employees. But then over time, you started to hear our, our, our customers wanted. And then in the last couple of years, amazingly, you're, you're even hearing some of it from the investors. Uh, I think 2016 was a big impetus because of what was happening in the political system. I mean, people looked around. Brexit happened. And in the U.S., you had Trump. And Sanders seemed to be getting close to taking uh, you had a socialist close to taking the Democratic nomination. And business leaders are saying, wait a minute, who represents me in this conversation? Um, and that forced a lot of people to step up. That was when I started hearing CEOs say, if we don't figure out how to do this better, we risk losing our operating licenses. That was a really important recognition. So so I've been tracking this for a decade and it has grown. And I wondered all along, I said, oh, well, this is this is great. But when the next recession hits, what happens? Because recessions obviously force you to ha take a short term focus. You just have to have enough cash to survive through the next week, next month, next quarter. Um, and, and those pressures are obviously there right now. But I have been shocked, surprised and pleased by the number of CEOs I've talked to who say, oh, now it's more important than ever. Uh, and again, it's more important because our, em our employees want it. It's more important because this is the way you have to lead large, complex organizations. We can talk about that more. Uh, it's more important because the political system is as dysfunctional as ever. It's more important because the divides that cause political dysfunction in our society between the those of us who can work from home very successfully and still make a living and, and all the people who can't and are disgruntled are being accelerated by this transition. Um, and so for all of those reasons, you have an awful lot of people stepping up and say, no, this is the moment when we really have to say 
how do we in the midst of this crisis create a better system at the other end of the crisis? And, and let me let me uh, give one extraordinary industry example. I don't know how many of your members are connected with the pharmaceutical industry, uh, but Quite those who are. <laughs> yeah. Well, those who are recognize that that three months ago, if you would ask me or anybody else who pays attention to this stuff, what's the most hated industry in the country? <laughs> There's a good chance. I mean, maybe maybe, uh, 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 you know, Comcast would have been up there, but there's a good chance that uh, they would have said the pharmaceutical industry. And that's for reasons we all know. It's because of the, uh, the pricing fights, the bad actors like uh, Martin Shkreli or Valiant Pharmaceuticals. It's because of the opioid crisis and the suspicion people have that uh, some of the big companies were somehow complicit in pumping those drugs out at any cost without regard to the consequences. All of that had just created a horrible crisis for the pharmaceutical industry. And, and what's been happening in the last two months is just breathtaking. I mean, I've had the opportunity to talk to the CEO of of uh, well, you mentioned uh, uh, Nubara Fayan of uh, who started Moderna, but also Pfizer, J and J, and all of them tell all of them. Uh, uh, also, Julie Gerberding at Merck, uh, not CEO, but head of their a lot of their uh, vaccine efforts. All of them tell me first of all, and this is what we were saying about the crisis in innovation. First of all, everybody has put profits to the side for the time being, and they're focused on a solution. And, you know, the New York Times will sometimes uh, portray this as a rush to make money. But everybody knows that whoever creates that successful vaccine is not going to make money, at least in the short term, off that vaccine. Because, you know, senators are already demanding it be given to people for free. It's going to require such extraordinary costs to develop it. It's not going to be a moneymaker. It could change the long-term fortunes of your company, but it's not going to be a moneymaker in the short term. Um, uh, and yet that doesn't seem to be on anybody's mind. All the protection of intellectual property that's such a part of that industry seems to be put aside. Everybody's collaborating, cooperating, working together, focusing on how do we solve this problem and help people. And so it's been an extraordinary demonstration of uh, stakeholder capitalism that I think will help propel this through the crisis and carry it forward in the future. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned um, the pharma business because uh, one of the things that uh, troubles me sometimes when we talk about stakeholder capitalism is we tend to go to ESG and offsetting the negatives, which is important, and we should do that. But Satya Nadella told you that you really have to focus on the core contribution of the enterprise with their core business. And you've partnered with Michael Porter on the Change the World issue from Harvard, and, and he talks about building – shareholder stakeholder broad stakeholder and societal value into your core business proposition is that the way right. you think about it Ab absolutely it, it, it's it's not that there's anything wrong with esg and csr uh but that's not what this is it's you know this is what new barafayan said he said look I, I i created flagship pioneering to solve impossible problems uh, um, that, because it's his belief that the only way you add value to society at this point in our history is to, uh, you know, most of the easy fruit has been picked is to find those impossible problems and solve it. And so he starts the very first moment he starts from how do I add value to society and, and works backwards from there to how do I create a company and ultimately make money? Um, uh, and I think that's exactly the, that is uh, stakeholder capitalism at its best. 
so the first question, Alan, for you is from uh, Tom Martin, a former chair of PAGE when he was CCO at ITT, now teaches at College of Charleston. Uh, back to economic policy. What will be the long-term impact of the unprecedented levels of debt being incurred in the U.S., Europe, and the rest of the world? I think, you know, Jay has been talking about this uh, recently as well. What are, are, do, do you see a concern? It's such an interesting question. Uh, I think our economic models are broken and have been for some time. Uh, uh, there, we haven't for over a decade seen any connection between debt levels and interest rates, which was the mechanism I was taught when I was studying economics, that, that all this debt would put, would ultimately put pressure on interest rates because there's only so much capital out there. Uh, and if the debt absorbs all the capital, then interest rates have to go up and you don't have the money you have for productive investment. But of course, what we've seen now for over a decade uh, and, and then there was also fear that there'd be a connection to inflation because you'd try and inflate to deal with the, the pressure on debt. And none of that has happened for a decade now. And the whole, you know, it's interesting. Janet Yellen actually taught me macroeconomics in graduate school at the London School of Economics. She did a she was at Berkeley, but she did a year sabbatical. And I have this clear memory of her drawing the Phillips curve on the board, you know, which is the relationship between unemployment and inflation and how the whole system kind of that was like the controller on the whole system hasn't worked. I mean, we see they put more and more money out there. It doesn't seem to have any effect on interest rates. Um, so I think given that and given the crisis, Jay Powell and Congress are doing the right thing to say this is an issue that we're going to need to think about someday, but today is not the day to think about it. Today, the bigger issue is the economic pain we're going to be in next year, and we need to do everything we can to offset it. That said, when we come out of this crisis with unprecedented levels of debt relative to GDP, we're, we're, we're going to need a, a, you know, a, an economic Manhattan project to figure out how is the economy really working today? What, is the con what, is, what are the effects of pumping all this money out? There must be effects, uh, even if they aren't directly felt in interest rates. Um, and and w where are they going to be felt and, and what are the consequences going to be over time? I mean, what we saw in the last decade was they did tend to pop up in inflated asset prices. And we're kind of seeing some of that right now. Anybody who looks at the stock market today has to say, this is not reflecting what's going on here on the ground. There's something going on in the stock market that has nothing to do with what's going on in the economy. And I tend to believe that is related to the high levels of money creation and debt creation. And, we've, and if we were going to have a Manhattan project like that, we would have to have the kind of collaboration that uh, Reagan and Tip O'Neill had uh, back in the 80s. Uh, we had Simpson Bowles a decade ago, and that was ignored. And we've got we've got to work across the aisle and, and come up with solutions. Uh, Marilyn Carver, who recently left uh, General Mills as CCO, uh, says, you were speaking earlier, Alan, about how critical workforce retraining transition support will be to getting the economy going again. She wants to know if you've seen any good examples of where this is being done well. Uh, she says it's a topic that's been discussed for the last 10 years. Uh, as society's answer to the gig economy was created a class of very fragile workers with almost no security. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really good point. I have to say, I, I have seen, now this is pre-pandemic, I have seen some really encouraging examples. I mean, if you were to go to Chicago 
and look at what a coalition of the top companies, um, uh, Accenture, Allstate, Hyatt, look at what they've done to create new pathways to work for uh, people who've been left behind. It's really, it's really very impressive. IBM has a has a, a, a similar program they put into place, not just for themselves, but for other program for other companies as well, to help create, you know, to get away. The the general sense in the business community is we fell back too deep into this notion. We used a four year college degree as the credential to hire people. And in fact, there are lots of examples. I mean, in New York, uh, there's an organization called Year Up that's taken college gra- or high school graduates from tough neighborhoods and given them a year of training uh, and placed them at the big banks like J.P. Morgan doing cybersecurity work, which you don't need a four year. You need some training to do. You need to be you need to know how to show up at the workplace uh, um, and be presentable and you know work with teams and all of that. But you don't have to have a four-year degree uh, to do the kind of work that that, that uh, cybersecurity people uh, are being hired by have been hired by the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands to do. We're going to have something similar happen now with contact tracers. So anyway, I'm I'm losing your question. I see really interesting anecdotal things going on. I see a a very sincere focus by the business community on this problem. I don't see anything that is at a scale that comes close to matching the size of the problem. I'd like to take a moment to thank our podcast sponsors for this year, Rivet, which is our podcast producer, and Crisp Thinking. Crisp Thinking uses AI and human intelligence to protect global brands from the weaponization of communication and the spread of misinformation. You can find out more at crispthinking.com. You can find out more about Rivet at rivet360.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of The New CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. To find out more about what's happening at Page, please visit us at page.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The New CCO.